Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Drew Drogi. I was obsessed with the Spice Girls right away. I was like, absolutely. And I started like kicking down doors and just laughing for no reason. Just like, ha 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 ha. That and more. But first, the day this episode drops is April 25th, 2023. And then two nights later on April 27th, we are going to be having our first live New York show of the year. I'm going to be there. Calvin S. Cato, Nate Runkle, Vicky Cooperman, T. Bernace will all be there. Amazing stories that we are preparing for this show. And you should be there to hear them in person because there's nothing quite... Quincy agrees, as you can hear in the background. Quincy insists that there's nothing quite like being there in the room where it happens. And I want to meet you. And you can meet our staff and these fabulous storytellers. So come on down to Caveat on the Lower East Side. The show is at 9.30 p.m. on April 27th. He's very insistent you come to see this show. Tickets and everything else you need to know about any of our live shows is always at risk-show.com slash live. We'll be right back. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Susie and the Banshees with Fear of the Unknown behind me now because we're calling this week's episode The Unknown with two stories about folks facing their fear of it. And did you notice that there was a cover of our theme song this week in the style of the theme song to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly by Nervous Neil Smith up top. He's becoming a real regular with uh, covering the Risk theme. And you could do that too. If you're a musician of any sort, just go to risk-show.com music to learn how you can cover our theme and uh, hear yourself at the top of the show. And hey, folks, if you don't follow Risk on TikTok yet, definitely get on over there. We are at Risk Show on TikTok. And these video clips from the entire history 
of the live shows and the podcast. I mean, some of these clips are going back to like, I don't know, 2009, 2010. And some are just, you know, last month. So they are a delight. They are so much fun to see. Some of them have gotten hundreds of thousands of views. So check it out. They're fun to see and share their at-risk show on TikTok. Now, a little bit later, we're going to hear about the sorts of unknowns that parents face in a beautiful story by Regina Stoops. But first, we were digging around in the archives and recently turned up this hidden gem that Drew Drogi told back in 2015 when we used to do shows at the old Nerdist Theater in L.A., now, Drew has done a bunch of hilarious solo shows. He teaches and directs improv and solo work at the Groundlings and Dynasty Typewriter in L.A. And he's the world's most beloved. Chloe Sivin... Sevigny... How the fuck do you say her name? Chloe Seveny? Se I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> True is the best Chloe, that person, impersonator. And here he is as himself, through Drogi, with the story we call How I Die. Hi, everybody. How's it going? We're gonna do this really fast. I got another show, so I gotta go. That's so great to start off with. Okay, okay, good. I got a quick story. Uh, doesn't care if anything lands. Don't care if you get it at all. Got more to do. Gotta keep going. Hollywood, right? Um, hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be at risk. Thanks for, for being here. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Yes. Um, Rejoicing. I think of that and I think about a time in my life that I didn't do a lot of rejoicing at all, uh, which was the 90s. I hated the 1990s, and I know that that's not popular now. It's not a popular opinion to have because everyone's like, oh, it's retro, it's cool. Like, I just saw that movie Dope, and it was like, oh, the 90s were great. I'm like, actually, fuck you, they weren't. Um, I loved the 80s, and I was a child in the 80s, and I was like, this is going to be the future. Like, I was like, oh, it's gonna be like DeLoreans and Ferris Bueller and fucking bubblegum and like fucking hot blonde mean dudes that just, you know. No, that did not happen. It was the 90s hit and it was like bowl cuts and olive and everyone was like grungy. Like even I can look back now and go, Green Day and Nirvana, were, they were great, but I hated them then. I hated everything then. I was like, the 90s for me were from 13 to 22, so. It was all of teenage years through college, and I was really sullen and upset, and I didn't get the grunge thing. I was chubby, I did have a bowl cut, I wore lots of earth tones, which are really bad when you're so white, you're almost blue. And so I was just not really that pleasant or happy, uh, unlike now when I'm a goddamn delight. Um, but anyway, so I was like, there was just this, this rash of things. I hated every, I hated like Soul Asylum and fucking Toad the Wet Sprocket. Go fuck yourself with that name. For non-blondes, cute. Go eat a basket of dicks. 
like all of it, I was like, no, uh-uh, no. I'm not even gonna turn on the radio because fucking Natalie Merchant's gonna come on and tell me that I need to like embrace her like faux Irish lilt, whatever the fuck she is. Anyway, so very angry until a moment in the 90s in about, I guess it was 96, 97, when these fucking five British motherfucking bitches kicked down a door in boots and gloss and just said, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I was like, oh, fucking Spice Girls. Yes, mama. I like what I see. Mel B and whatever the fuck their names were. I just remember that was the only one, I think. Um, but I was like, yes, Emma. Yeah, baby was named Emma. Great. Uh, I was obsessed with the Spice Girls right away. I was like, absolutely. And I started like kicking down doors and just laughing for no reason. Just like, ha, 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 ha. Spice, Spice Girls were like an awakening for me about a lot of things. It was like, oh, you like Spice Girls. Maybe you should dump your girlfriend, you know, and um, things like that. So, yeah. So that happened. And then at the same time, my college theater department was doing Six Degrees of Separation. Um, why aren't you laughing? Don't you all get that? There's zero joke there. Um, but uh, that we were, I went to a very small liberal arts school in North Carolina, very conservative and we were doing a very like avant-garde uh, play. Have you guys seen the movie with Will Smith? You guys know that, right? Yes, but it was very edgy. We were doing it. It was, it was very controversial that we were doing that because we normally would do like just chestnuts, like arsenic and old lace or whatever, horrible things. So we were doing that at the time and I was very excited to be a part of it. It was a very important piece of theme storytelling. And there was a new guy in the production that our theater department knew each other. It was a very small department. And there was this new guy in the production. And he was a senior and is very tall and lanky and has this very quiet, like, denasal voice. And he had this, like, shock of, like, bright red hair. Just very thin and elegant. Straight, heterosexual, and very much so to this day, yes. Um, he was in this production with us. He got in with us. And then he was someone who, like, right away was like in our circle and we didn't really know too much about him. He was a senior and nobody knew him on campus. Nobody knew who this guy was. And then he had a party at his house. He owned a house, which was crazy. It was like he was a homeowner. And so that was like nobody, I mean, I'm 38 and have nowhere near a home. I'm nowhere near that. And I, and I knew that. I knew that like 20, I was not gonna have a house at 38. Like I kind of knew that. But I was like, he owned a home. And not only a home, but it was in downtown Winston-Salem. And it was a historical, it had a marker in the front yard. It was called the Butterfly House. And it was shaped like a butterfly. And we like, he invited us over to this party and he had like friends that were like, they were like 30. You know, they were like, he had like adult friends, you know, and they were like sipping scotch and we walked into their house and they all kind of turned around like, hi. And we were like, oh my God, this is crazy. It was like as if everyone at the party was like male or female, all of them were named Sloan. You know, there were just these very like, how's it going? You know, and we were like dorks. And we were like, what the fuck's happening here? And he had like, he had an original Andy Warhol hanging on, his, on the wall. He had a Boba Fett, like a life-size Boba Fett that was like this big. And he, I think he also had the Han Solo thing. I think he had a whole Star Wars room. Yeah, he, why not? For the sake of the story, sure. Um, he had a uh, signed poster by G-Love and the special sauce. So he was doing very well. And more than anything, he had a poster that was, and I've told this story several times, I need to look this up, I never do, but it's a, I describe it, basically it's like this very 80s, like just a torso of like a man in like a button down shirt and a tie. But most importantly, it's what Carrie Elways 
has in that movie, Kiss the Girls, the Ashley Judd movie. Remember in the 90s, Ashley Judd was like, every year she was in a, she was humorless in a movie with an older black man. And they like fought crime together. Like every year, that, that was another reason to hate the 90s. It was like, we have to watch this now again. So Ashley Judd was in a movie where like, Carrie Elways was the killer and he had that, that thing in his house. So later that night at the party, we were like, oh my God, this guy is, we were really stoned. And we got back to our, our shit ass dorm room and we were like, he's a serial killer. Like, he's gotta be. Like, nobody knows where he is. Oh, and he also told us, like, weird information. Like, his family's in the steel business. That sounds like bad improv. Like, that's just like, you know, like, what does that mean? And so we were like, it's not, it doesn't add up. He, like, has all this money. He owns a house. He's, like, posing as someone else. That's not his identity. And he has Carrie Elway's poster from that movie. Like, that's just, he's laughing at us and saying, I kill people. I wear skin. And so, anyway... We're rehearsals, and he finds out, and I'm, all I'm doing at this time, uh, the next day, is just Spice Girls, Spice Girls, Spice Girls, Zigga Zig Ah, uh, Sporty, Baby, whatever. It's posh. And it's all I'm talking. And so he comes up, and he was like, Drew, I noticed that you really like the Spice Girls. I have two tickets to see Spice World. Okay, for those of you who don't know, Spice World was the brilliant film that was about the Spice Girls and their adventures. Um, so that, <laughs> sorry that I have to clarify that, but a few of you looked confused. Um, so anyway, so he was like, he had an extra ticket to see Spice World. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm gonna go to see Spice World. Absolutely. He's like, he's like I'm paying, I'm paying, we're going. It's gonna be fucking awesome. And so I was like, great. So he picks me up in this Range Rover, brand new, picks me up and opens the door, and I had this thought of like, don't get in the car. Just don't get in the car. Like overwhelmingly like, no, no, no. And I was like, oh, stupid, fuck it. I also happened to look, he's wearing driving gloves. So he has fucking gloves on. And so I was like, oh, okay, I get in the car. He hands me a fucking kielbasa-sized joint. Like, I mean, it was like, kofunk. <gasps> He's like, let's spark, whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> so high, immediately, rap, 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 talk, 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 talk. And he's not talking at all, he's just driving. <laughs> then it's dark, it's North Carolina, we're in the woods. He goes on a dirt road, like goes on this fucking road that I, and I'm like, uh, oh, I, I think the movies are back that way. Like, I was like, oh no, this is, I know a shortcut. <laughs> and I mean, I was like, oh fuck, this is how I die. This is how it happened. And I knew it. And I said, yes, last night, the serial killer. And I got in a car with him and I'm high and I'm like, and I can feel the fucking rocks underneath the tires. And we're like, and you couldn't see anything. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to jump out of the car. I'm gonna jump out of this Range Rover. Cause this is not how it's gonna happen. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna jump out and I'm gonna run. There's gonna be a house or a village somewhere and I'm gonna, gonna seek refuge and he's not gonna get me. So I fucking undo my seatbelt and I could feel it like sliding up. And I'm literally like, I'm gonna make the decision to fuck. Cause I was like, I think you may be on the wrong road. Are you lost? You're lost, right? You're just lost. I can tell, I think we should go back. No, no, you're just stoned. You're stoned. It's fine. 
And then I fucking, I, my seatbelt gets up out here, and he just goes, uh, buckle your seatbelt. And then he's fucking said, safety first. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So he knows, like he knows I'm onto him. So now he's like gonna outsmart me. Next thing I know, he's gonna pull out a gun and like shoot one of the tires. And you know, it's gonna get fucking nuts right now. I can just feel it. And finally, I'm just like sweating and going crazy and I just can't even relax. And I'm just feeling just my anus go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, no. Um, sorry. Um, she's like, that's just too much for me. I was with you and now I don't know what you're about. Uh, anyway, so I was like this and then finally I go, you know what? I am really freaking out right now. This is not cool. I just want to see Spice World. Take me to the movies now. And then, and then I said, I don't know you. I think I said a lot of things like that. Like, I, this is weird for me. I'm very uncomfortable. You're freaking me the fuck out. What are you, are you gonna kill me? What's happening? As I'm screaming at him, we go, we're going up over here. We go up and then I see the movie theater right in front of me. He knew a shortcut. Some people just wear driving gloves. He became one of my best friends and I did tell this story one time on the radio and he defriended me on Facebook. But other than that, I think he's a great person and I wish him well. Thank you so much. If you wanna be my lover. I started like kicking down doors and just laughing for no reason. I never thought I'd be a mom. It wasn't that I didn't like kids. I like kids a lot. It's just that I never thought about it in the way that I never thought about being an Olympic gymnast. You know, it just wasn't possible. It just didn't seem like it would ever happen. And that changed when I met Diane and we began to build a life together. And I knew that she wanted a baby. She wanted to actually give birth to a baby. She was really just a big kid herself, and I think she just wanted to make sure there was someone around that she could play with. But regardless, I knew she wanted to have kids, and I was willing to go along with that. And more than that, I was willing to fully commit to the process. And Diane's always the spontaneous one, the let's have an adventure one, and I was usually the one that would bring the map so that we could actually have the adventure. And I could come up with a lot of pragmatic reasons why having a child was gonna be difficult, not the least of which is that we were two women. But I knew that this was really important to Diane and I knew that if she wanted it, I wanted it. Because I knew that her happiness would become my happiness. So I was all in with the let's have a baby thing. And we managed to pull it off. Uh, we found a known donor and we used what I like to call the at-home turkey baster method. And uh, nine months later, our son Ryan was born 
And he was the best baby. I mean, like most first time parents, we think that our kid is absolutely the most beautiful best baby on the face of the earth because he was. And he was a total chill kid. Like he would wake up in the morning and he'd be in his crib and he would just hang out until we had a cup of coffee and went in and got him out of the crib. And he never had those tantrums. You know, I'd be in the grocery store and there'd be these kids having these whiny tantrums. And I would smugly think, well, my child is not doing that because I'm such a great mom and all. So <laughs> he, uh, he was just great. He was chill. Uh, and he loved shapes. We discovered early on that he was really a whiz with shapes. We got him a, uh, a shape sorter. It was like a wooden box and on all the sides it had different shapes. And this was not just squares or circles or triangles. No, this had like octagons and pentagons and stars. And he mastered that thing. It was his favorite toy. He also was good at sorting, and before he could even walk, we discovered that if we opened the dishwasher and pulled the utensil drawer out and set it on the floor, that he could empty the utensils out of the dishwasher and sort them. And he was quite happy to do it, and we were quite happy to put him to work. So again, just really, really good baby. He was late to talk. He didn't talk much um, and late to walk and to crawl. And we weren't worried about it. His pediatrician wasn't really worried about it. And, you know, he had two moms. How was he ever going to get a word in edgewise? But uh, at age two and a half, the pediatrician said, you know, I think maybe he should go to a speech therapist. Let's just see what's going on because he's not really putting sentences together like he should be. And so, okay, we went to the speech therapist. And, you know, it's funny how some things just stick in your head. And the day that we went to that speech therapist is just really etched in my mind because I remember it was a, uh, it was a beautiful fall day. The sky was just a vivid blue and uh, the leaves were coming off the trees and they were swishing across the parking lot making that sound that leaves do and they would crunch when we walked on them. And, and I'm walking into the office and I'm holding Ryan's hand and the speech therapist's office is... Uh, it's like a big office with toys and puzzles and books and things, I think, so that the speech therapist can get the child to interact with her. And, and in one corner, it had like a grown-up chair and a desk. And then at the other end, it had a little kid's table and a chair. And so we go in, and Ryan's just wandering around, checking out all the stuff. And, and the speech therapist uh, starts to talk to me, and she's asking me, kind of typical questions about Ryan, like were there any complications with his birth and when did he crawl and when did he walk and when did he first say a few words and how many words do you think he has? And does he do that hand flapping thing a lot? Because at the moment, Ryan has discovered an airplane and he is in full on hand flap mode. And I say, well, yeah, he does that when he gets excited, like he is right now. And it was just strange. I felt like I was taking a very important test. Like I'm sitting in a really small chair taking a really big test and I had that sweaty palms and kind of butterflies in my stomach and I just feel like every answer is so important. And towards the end of our, our meeting, she says to me, she says, you know, I think he needs to be seen by a developmental pediatrician. And that's when I felt myself go numb. I felt like lightheaded and I felt like I wasn't really in the room. I was kind of floating above the room. I wasn't really participating in the conversation anymore. And I just knew in a way that moms know that something is wrong and something has changed and it's never going to be the same. And 
Years before this, I had volunteered to work at a camp with developmentally disabled kids, and I had tried really hard over the past two years to not see how some of Ryan's quirky behaviors, the hand flapping and disinterest in other kids, how those things mimicked the campers. But it seemed that now I was gonna have to see that. So we walked out of the therapist's office and we walked out into that same beautiful day, only it felt like it was a completely different day. And even though I'm holding the same boy's hand, it feels like it belongs to a different boy, that that boy has been swapped out and replaced with another. And I called Diane to tell her that they're recommending a developmental pediatrician. And, you know, Diane, ever the optimist, she's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything is wrong. And I just, I didn't want to rain on her parade. I didn't want to tell her what my experience was telling me. So we went home and we made the appointment for the developmental pediatrician. And I just had this feeling of impending doom and I had trouble focusing. I couldn't really think on anything other than what was up with Ryan and how everything had changed in that one moment. We had to go to Children's Hospital for the developmental pediatrician's assessment. And the office was a lot like uh, the speech therapist, you know, it had toys and books and things like that. And she talked to Ryan and had him do some puzzles and and she would point to an object, a picture, like Ryan, where's the truck? And he could point to the truck. But if she would point to something like a dog or a cat and say, Ryan, what's this? He couldn't answer it. He could point to it, but he couldn't say what it was. And she had him do some physical things, some walking up and down stairs. And, and the whole time, again, I'm just like, I'm willing him to not walk on his toes or not flap his hands. And I'm willing him to speak because now I'm seeing all of the things that I never wanted to see right now, right in front of me. And when the assessment's done, a week later, get a long report that basically says that Ryan is being diagnosed with autism. And it was devastating. I think more so for me than Diane. Again, she is the ever optimistic, it'll all work out. And so having a son diagnosed with autism doesn't make her wake up at 3 a.m. with a pounding heart and sweaty palms. And I feel like I'm going through the stages of grief, like I'm mad and I'm sad and I just feel awful. And I feel like I've been ripped off, you know? I feel like in some way, like I was bribed or, you know, it was like a bait and switch. Like I had been promised this perfect baby and now he was gone away. And I felt like shit for feeling that way. I feel like some kind of monster. And I wondered, is it because I'm not the birth mom? Is, is that why I'm feeling this way? I had a coworker that used to joke when she wanted to make a derogatory remark about someone, she would call him short bus. And I never quite understood that. And finally one day I said, why do you call people short bus? And she said, you know, the short bus, that's what the special ed kit, the retards, that's what they ride when they go to school. And That joke was never funny, but now it really wasn't funny because I was gonna have a kid who's gonna be riding the short bus. And you know, it was fine for me to work with developmentally disabled kids, you know, wonderful me, but it didn't mean I wanted to have one. So I did the thing that you shouldn't do, which is I looked up autism online and um, you know, there's just way too much information and there's all these theories about what causes it and all these wacky treatments like, you know, cleansing the blood of metals and 
hyperbaric oxygen chambers and funky diets and just all sorts of things, too much information. And one of the fun facts was that the divorce rate for parents with a special need child is much higher than the norm because of the stress of raising a special needs child. And there's no cure for autism. You just kind of have to manage it, manage the behaviors and try to improve the behaviors. And all of the things that I had assumed that my son would do now seem to be called into question. I mean, just things like, would he talk? Would he graduate from high school? Would he get a driver's license? Would he get married? Would he have friends? Would he want friends? A month later, his younger brother, Jack, yeah, we had had another one because we were so good at producing babies. Look at us smug lesbians. I discovered that I had a unique gift for impregnating women, and I managed to get Diane pregnant on the first try again. And when Ryan was 17 months old, his little brother, Jack, was born. So Jack, now 18 months, I'm taking him to the doctor because he's got this fever and cough combination that he gets quite often. And so the doctor once again prescribes like a keg of amoxicillin. And then she pauses and she looks at me and says, you know, I think he needs to be tested for cystic fibrosis. I'm pretty sure the look on my face must have said it all. I was like, what? I mean... What the fuck? Do you not remember two weeks ago? Autism? Ryan? This? And she said, you know, I don't think he has it, but we need to be sure we need to test. So we had to go back to Children's Hospital to have the test done. And the test for cystic fibrosis, it's not a painful test. It's called the sweat chloride test. And it's where they, they put something on his little arm to make it sweat. And then there's this sort of reverse plastic spring that collects all the sweat. And so it's not painful. It's just time consuming. You have to wait around until you collect enough sweat. And so Jack and I sit around in the cafeteria at the hospital. And Jack's just munching on his Cheerios, alternating between whether... A particular Cheerio is floor-worthy or mouth-worthy. And I am trying to just be present and be with Jack, and I'm trying not to go down any dark rabbit holes, but I cannot escape the irony that Ryan is physically healthy, but has just been diagnosed with a developmental disability. And Jack, while neurotypical and is chatting up a storm, might have a lifelong life-shortening chronic disease. Takes about 10 days to get the results back. And I, I couldn't concentrate on anything again. My mind just kept circling back to, what if he has it? What if he has it? And crazy stuff that pops into my head. I had this, you know, stuff gets filed away in my brain. And then years later, it'll just bubble to the surface. And this was one of those times because the thing that kept popping into my head is Schrodinger's cat, which I'm not entirely clear on the principle, but it has to do with quantum physics and it has to do with the idea that there's a cat in a box with something that could kill it, like radioactive something or other. And until you open the box, you don't know if the cat is dead or alive. So technically, in theory, it's both at the same time. And that's how I felt about Jack that until we got the test results, he was both healthy and unhealthy 
at the same time. I also went down the, uh, is God punishing us, you know, my Catholic guilt. Uh, who were we, two women, thinking we should have a baby, two babies at that. And when the phone finally rings, I see it's my doctor's number. I know it's a doctor's number. And I hesitate just a few seconds before I answer the phone. Because if the test is positive, I just want a few more seconds of not knowing. So I answer the phone and the results are negative. Jack does not have cystic fibrosis. And I feel such a sense of relief. And I pick up Jack and I hold him tight until he gets tired of this and he squirms down my leg and runs off. And I look over at Ryan and he's sitting there quietly playing with his trains. And I feel this shift inside me. And the thing that pops into my head at that moment is the scene from How the Grinch Stole Christmas, where all of a sudden he gets the true meaning of Christmas and his heart grows three times in size. Boom, boom, boom. And I felt like that. I felt this this shift in me. And I realized I got it. I finally got it. I got that Ryan was the same kid he had always been. He was the same perfect baby that I had fallen in love with the moment he arrived. He was the same quiet, hand-flapping, shape-sorting, wonderful, wonderful little boy. And I knew that it was going to be okay. I didn't know how, but I knew that we'd deal with it and it would be okay. And this would be our path forward. And the autism had been the worst thing ever until it wasn't. risk this is of course talking heads behind me now i just heard that they are doing a restored re-release of their classic concert movie stop making sense very soon and i am definitely going to go to the cinemas to see that again like i did when i was 14 years old it was such a 
sort of a life-changing experience. Regina told us that this song, uh, Stay Up Late, was on the radio when she and her partner, Diane, first drove their baby Ryan home from the hospital. You can find Regina and her blog, Normal Notes, at reginastoops.com, and her story was edited and sound designed by Hope Brush. Before that, we heard a spicy little interstitial by Taj Easton, following Drew Drogi's equally spicy story. You can find Drew at drewdrogi.com or on his own podcast, Minor Revelations. And hey, if you are one of our Patreon patrons, you may already know that our latest bonus story is a really unique one. I mean, this was a very, very unusual but fascinating story told by Shay Smith, the rapper better known as Rhyme Fest. And here's a little bit of what that sounds like. And so the next morning, I was still resentful of my wife of saying, so what? And I woke up early in the morning and I said, I'll show her. I'll leave before she wakes up and I'll be gone, even though I'll be back. That is, of course, available to our patrons over at patreon.com slash risk as a thank you for helping us to keep the podcast running. And we do mean thank you. It is very necessary. And special thanks to Vishwas Pet, our latest Patreon patron donating $25 or more per month. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, I want to ask you a question, and by folks, I mean you, dear listener. Have you ever been lost? Like, so lost, you were worried you'd never find your way back again? Could be literally lost, or just figuratively. Okay, now think. Is there a story in that? If so, pitch us your stories about being lost in any way at risk-show.com slash submissions. Meanwhile, next week, we're going to have a gut-wrenching story by Diaceline Gonzalez, plus two heartfelt stories by David Beck. But that is all next week. And as for today, well, folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk.
the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. 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 The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. 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 And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear. and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Drop. Drop. Drop.